to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. And where we have been in the last several weeks is we've been walking in an idea that ends today. And what we, the idea that we've been walking in is that there are people that God appoints for his role in his story. And that there is a main theme of scripture that all points to Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross and the power of his resurrection and that he's the centerpiece of the story. And then the rest of us are kind of extras in the film. We're the role players. And based on how you grew up and the ideas that you had about who you were, that might be a hard pill to swallow for some of us, that we're not the, the main character in the narrative of God, that, that we are coming alongside his son Jesus who's to be exalted. And then the second concept that we've been walking in is this. We've been saying this week after week after week, that the church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. And so it's not just about a person talking to you on a Sunday or, you know, Greg's hunting this weekend. We don't have our, our head worship pastor on staff this weekend. And it doesn't really matter because it's about all of us coming together for the cause, which is lifting up the name of Jesus. And so we all do that together. And so what we've been looking at are the details and the fine print. Those, those people who don't really get much airtime but end up being a part of something that's much bigger. And what we've been doing is we've been studying people after Christ left in the book of Acts. And the way we're going to close is very Star Wars-esque in that... We're going back to the beginning. So it starts at the end, and then, in all my brilliance, we're going back to the beginning, and it's gonna feel like a Christmas story that's not about Christmas because we're gonna look at the lineage of Christ at the very beginning of Matthew. And then what I'm gonna keep telling you, and I want you to just digest this, is that details fundamentally matter in the narrative. Uh, for example, if you think details don't matter, you can miss it in some things in life. So just so you know about details, when you're on a date, and the person tells you right away how bad their last relationship was. Look at me, as a counselor, look at me. Details matter, amen? How many of you know that when someone just trashes the person before them, they're probably not telling you the whole story, and details matter? Or another example, anyone in here ever hired anyone? First service was packed, and, and no one had ever hired anyone. Have you ever hired anyone? I know it's happening, so you're like, yes, I didn't hire that person over there. That's okay. Um, I'll get over it at some point. You know, I, I, I got a job in ministry, but... Uh, Anyone ever hired someone? What, what do you know about hiring someone about details? When they have a gap of employment, right? There's usually not a true gap. They're just hiding something from you, and those details matter. If you have food allergies and there's no clear description on the menu, details, and my shtick is that you finish the thought, details matter. All right, good. Thank you. I'm getting insecure. Last one. When you have a teenager that says they're going out with their friends, Details matter. Now we're awake. Details matter. And the point is that in the people of the fine print, the story behind the story is the real story. And in the story of Jesus, so you have after he leaves earth, and then you have everything that happens in the Old Testament. I told you I want to finish this thing in the Old Testament. Everything that happens in the Old Testament of these per people who were a part of this storyline that points directly to Christ. And so for us, we just skim over that. But if you were living 2,000 years ago and Matthew was trying to convince you as a Jew that Jesus is the Messiah, these details fundamentally matter. Who's in the lineage is all about the prophecies that bring us to the place of Jesus. And so all four accounts of the Gospels are written from a different perspective. Two accounts don't say anything about his birth. Mark and John start with the ministry of John the Baptist 30 years into Jesus' life. Luke begins with the announcement of Christ, but Matthew, the tax collector, he goes further. 
And so there's gonna be a bit of a Bible lesson in this. If you pass some Sunday school stuff, you're gonna fly through this and go, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Or if it's your first time ever hearing the gospel, you'll still catch it, but you'll learn more. Because in Matthew, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and it's boring to the average reader, uh, reader, but details matter. And so what he knows is he has to show that Christ is the Messiah based on the reality that he comes from the line of King David. Because Jews believed through prophetic you know, word in the Old Testament that if the Messiah doesn't come from David, then he's not the real Messiah. And so De- Matthew has a job to do. He has to show how this happens. But here's where it gets so tricky. Here's where details matter. Here's where the heart of the gospel comes to light. He starts adding people to it that are in the lineage that if I was writing it, I would have left them out. He starts adding people to the narrative that are in the narrative, but historically he could have kind of skimmed over them, and then Matthew chooses not to do that, and I want to bring that to light because details matter. And so read it with me. The verse one, I'm going to butcher some names, but let's do this together. Verse one, chapter one, Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, follow it along with me. You can see it on the screen. Hopefully you have your own Bible as well. Right out of the gate, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He has to go there, and he's going to come back to it later. We're just going to go through a few of these that I think are significant. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. What did Abraham do? He, father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Okay, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And so it's a Jewish audience. He has to go to David, who's descended from the throne. And while he's doing that, he starts adding women to the mix. And this is why this is a bit surprising. He doesn't just add women, which he wouldn't have had to, according to the cultural rules. He adds women with some stories. He adds women with some stories that are unusual and not very pretty, and so when he does that, we have to take note of it because that's where he goes next. There are four women in the mix that if I was writing this genealogy in this time period and I wanted to look good that Jesus is who he says he is, I probably would have left these women out because there's a little bit of history behind this that you have to understand. And so look at verse three. Now he's gonna let the plot thicken. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Here's what's going on. Tamar is in Genesis chapter 38. If you like details, which I actually don't, but if you like details, you should grab a hold of this. In your free time this week, go and read one of the most dysfunctional soap operas that are in the history of the world, Genesis chapter 38. In fact, it's so gory, I'll give you a bit of the story and you can read it on your own because it is, in some ways, it's rated R. This woman sets up a guy by the name of Judah by dressing up like a prostitute, and there's a story behind that, but we don't have time. Judah, her should-be father-in-law, doesn't recognize her, thinks she's a prostitute, and she's trying to get pregnant, and so she sleeps with her should-be father-in-law. There's a whole story about that in Genesis chapter 38. But my point is this, Jesus Christ, and I'm gonna keep going back to this idea, since the beginning of time with the Father and the Holy Spirit, starts crafting this narrative of this time and this place and this people that he is going to be from, and he adds this woman who dresses up like a prostitute and tricks her soon-to-be father-in-law into getting pregnant into this narrative because that's the way that God wants it to be. And so Matthew includes her in the narrative himself. 
and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And if I'm saying these wrong, you're like, well, I can't prove it, right? So let's just keep rolling. And Nashon the father of Solomon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, maybe you've heard of that name. Now check this out. By Rahab, and so his mom is Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Here's where the plot thickens. Rahab is in the story of Joshua. There are spies that want to come over and then take out Jericho, God's people, and you guys have heard the story, right? You know the cute song, and the walls came tumbling down, 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 down. Here's the real story. Rahab's intricately involved in that process. She houses these people, Uh, Some people from Jericho say, hey, have you seen these spies? She lies and says she hasn't, and she houses them. They come in. They march around the walls. You guys know that story if you've been in any way involved in Sunday school. But here is Rahab's real story. She has a nickname. It wasn't just Rahab. It was Rahab the what? Do you know it? Rahab the prostitute. And everybody reading this story by Matthew knows that's her real name. And so you have Tamar who's faking to be a prostitute. You have Rahab who is a prostitute. You have Ruth who's not even Jewish, ends up in the line and lineage of Jesus Christ himself. And Matthew is connecting all of these people to David to take us on this bizarre trail to get to a place where we need to see the heart of the gospel. The story keeps going. Rahab the prostitute knows something about the heart of God that we need to grab a hold of. That although we wouldn't have picked her to be in our narrative, God picks her to be in his narrative because he sets her apart, he calls her out by name, he puts her in his narrative of his redemptive story to show us what unconditional love really looks like. Rahab didn't somehow get loved by God when she cleaned herself up. While she was still a prostitute, God enters into this narrative with her life. And as she follows God, he blesses her. But the idea is is profound, specifically from a counseling perspective, that before you were ever good enough, God already had a plan for you. That he didn't clean you up first and say, hey, once you look like this, then you're going to be worthy of my affection. Once you look like this, then you're going to be worthy of my love. Once you look like this, then I'm going to decide if I have a plan for your life. No, God sets us apart in Christ Jesus, and we look like Rahab. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is perfect. We're all sinners, and we're the role players. And so Rahab is in this narrative that she shouldn't have been in. Not only is Rahab in the narrative, the the story continues. It gets even juicier than that. Verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. So now we're at David. And David was the father of Solomon. Who's Solomon? He's the wisest man who ever lived. By the wife of Uriah. You can't skip over that because that's huge. In the NIV, it says it a little differently. Solomon's mother, who had been the wife of Uriah. Why was she past tense the wife of Uriah? The reason she's past tense the wife of Uriah is David, in all of his brilliance, is looking down at his kingdom, thinks he can do whatever he wants to do because that's at the heart of the pride of man. And in his heart, he says, I can have what I want. I can do what I want. So he looks down off his kingdom. He sees a beautiful woman. What's her name? Bathsheba, let's wake up, all right? I'm almost done with the history lesson. Bathsheba is sitting down there bathing, and he decides that he can have her, and he can do whatever he deems fit, so he brings her into the kingdom. 
He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He freaks out. Here's where it gets like Maury Povich, Jerry Springer. Here, days of our lives, she gets pregnant. He makes a decision. The only way I can deal with this eventually is I have to kill this woman's innocent husband and I have to send him into battle. And his name is what? Uriah. And Matthew writes the story and he says, Solomon's mother, who had been Uriah's wife, it's like he's almost maybe a bit embarrassed of the narrative of Jesus' lineage. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you come from a less than perfect family line? Right? How many of you don't just have a crazy uncle? Your whole family's kind of crazy. If this was more charismatic, like, mm-hmm, right? You're like, well, I hear this story, and I, I can relate to this, and, and the gospel is here for you to relate to it. What's Matthew getting at? Can you hear the Jewish people reading this text? And there's kind of these whispers, Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife. Oh, that's Bathsheba. She was, you know, fill in the blank. We want to kind of sweep that under the rug, and Jesus brings it right to light. Matthew knew firsthand what this was all about. Matthew knew what it was like to be hated, to be despised. Matthew knew what it was like to have a circle, and then here's the inner circle, right? And you're way out here on the outside of the circle because of your story and your lineage. Matthew knew exactly what that was like because Matthew was what? Matthew was a tax collector. There was the tax collectors and everyone else. It was considered in Jewish thought that if you were a tax collector, you were less than human. You were the ultimate Benedict Arnold. Matthew spent three years with Jesus. Matthew sees the empty tomb. Matthew saw him on a cross. Matthew saw him engage specific crowds. Matthew saw Jesus hang out with shady characters over and over and over again with all of their baggage and all their embarrassing stories. And Matthew knew something, that that was the entire point, that Jesus is the light and he interjects into darkness. And so Matthew knew that from his own story. Matthew meets Jesus in peculiar terms. The story's personal. He had not met Jesus. Jesus is preaching by a giant lake. He's surrounded by a crowd. Jesus forgives a man's sins and tells him a paralytic to get up and walk. And then moments later, this is what happens in Matthew 9.9. Just don't turn there, just listen. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose up and he followed him. And you can imagine, right, the worst of the worst, taking money from his own people and, and, and just making his own pockets richer and giving it to this oppressive government that is absolutely abusing the Jewish people. That's what Matthew was doing with his life. He was the neighborhood kid at the corner selling drugs, right? He wasn't even the kid selling drugs. He was the kid that was delivering the drugs to the kid that sold the drugs that everyone wants to put in prison for a long time. He's a bad guy in the culture around him. And Jesus walks up to him. He doesn't try to fix them all first. He just says, hey, you, Look at me. He says, you follow me. Follow me. And Matthew just obeys. He's outside of the circle. Now he's in the circle of Christ. And you can imagine there's an audible groan with the rabbis around Jesus. You can hear them. Wait, wait, who, who did he say to follow him? Right? The thief on the cross is not even as guilty as this guy who's ripping off his own people. There's an audible groan. The next verse is the last verse we'll read. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined, at the table in the house, behold, this is crazy. Many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And so it goes from one to many. People hang out in clusters, don't they? It's like if you want to know who a certain crowd is, find one person in the crowd. And all of a sudden you have that whole circle. 
Anyone ever raise a teenager that's less than perfect? What do you always say? They got in with the wrong crowd. It's never your kid. Your kid's perfect. But they get in with the wrong crowd, and what does the wrong crowd do? They all circle around each other. And so Jesus goes to the wrong crowd, to the wrong house, and he starts pouring into these people, and their lives are changed. And so I want to close this whole process out over the last six weeks with this main driving idea that details matter. And what I want you to write down as we close this thing out is this. Write it down. Jesus and the people of the fine print that made his own lineage, Jesus came for sinners, from sinners. I think that's an important point to make. I think the first time I ever heard that was about five years ago from Andy Stanley. I thought that was amazing because I had never thought of it. We all know that Jesus comes from sinners and, you know, in John 3, 16 and in Romans and while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. But Jesus does something even more than that. He puts his own lineage on display and he could have come from anybody. He could have set up that narrative however he chose. And when he sets all this up, he comes for sinners, but he does what so in a way that's so relatable, he actually comes from sinners so that we can connect with the idea. He had a broken family tree. He had more than one crazy uncle. He had prostitutes in his lineage. He had murderers in his lineage. He had people that got pregnant, and then the husband is axed. Right in the lineage of Christ, he chose this. Jesus came for sinners, from sinners. He mapped out this lineage long before he ever stepped on the scene and he chooses a broken family tree. And I just wanna emphasize this one more time. If your story is less than perfect, then welcome to Jesus, welcome to the faith. If for the last several generations your family has been way out here and the thought of them even coming to church seems like a stretch, welcome to new life. You're not alone. One of my favorite parts about this church is that people will come here, specifically when it's full, and they're looking around, and, and because it's Aberdeen, kind of everyone knows someone who knows someone. That's how it works. And one of the things that people will say about New Life is they'll say, I started coming here, and I was shocked. They'll say, I was shocked that I saw this person over here from this context in the community, and they're sitting in church. I never thought, have you ever heard that about New Life? I never thought that I would see this person in church because I know their story and their cousin's story and what they did and this. I mean, it's just like one huge dysfunctional Mayberry. It's crazy sometimes in Aberdeen. And that's the heart of the gospel. Jesus came for sinners, from sinners, and because you're a sinner, aren't you glad that he chose to relate to you in that way? It's so relatable. Jesus puts this sin on display so that we can see what transformation looks like. Number two, write this down. Jesus Example, it's the standard. Jesus' example is the standard. It's not the exception. Put that on the screen, if you will, if you're not sleeping in live stream. Jesus' example is the standard, not the exception. Jesus' entire life, he's pursuing brokenness. So if, if you're writing this story, Dr. Luke, we talked about him last week as a person of the fine print. You're gathering all the information. He's a doctor, so he likes the details. And you start noticing common themes, or maybe you're living it with him like Matthew was. You saw the themes firsthand, and now you're writing the story. The story of Jesus is so common in its pursuit of brokenness that when you come to read the next storyline, you're already expecting the next person to be broken. 
It's not like a, a wild card out there in, in left field. It's the same narrative over and over and over again. This woman who's bleeding comes to Jesus. This person who just lost a son comes to Jesus. The story of the prodigal son, which is a parable. It's brokenness after brokenness after brokenness, and it's the standard, not the exception. You anticipate that to be the case in the next narrative of the gospel account. And so how does that affect us? Well, as a church, it affects us greatly. As a church, it stops us from being a good old boys club who has a judgmental spirit to it. We have a standard that's Christ and his morality and his truth, and we don't budge, but we love people that are broken because that's what Jesus does. And the sad reality is that's all of us before Christ. The good news is we don't have to stay that way. And so what we do at New Life is we take all of our metaphorical, and let me hear, say that again so no one like, sends an email, metaphorical poker chips, we're not going to gamble. We take all of our metaphorical poker chips, we slide them to that end of the table and say we are all in for that. And the reason that we're all in for that is because that's Jesus. Pursuing brokenness is the standard, not the exception. And so we don't have a good old boys club. We don't have, you know, a, an entry fee. Or, and we don't have this idea that once we have this bubble and we reach this many people, then we're done. We're never done. We never stop. We're going to go and make disciples to the end of the earth and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey because that's what Jesus tells us to do. And that's the standard, not the exception. And if you get tired of doing that, then you get, to get tired of new life. And this place is going to drive you absolutely bonkers, specifically me. Because the job's never done until Christ returns. Last point, sermon series closer, here it is. Write it down. It is not about, here's the good news, it is not about how you start but how you finish. Isn't that great news? That regardless of your story, regardless of your family history, that as a person of the fine print, you have this starting point that you may be embarrassed about, but the good news of the gospel is that all of our starting points are bad and that Christ is good, and it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish in Christ. It's about that last day when you go to meet Christ face to face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that good news? Are you awake? Let's go, Germans. You need some emotion, okay? Isn't that good news? I'm losing my voice. Somebody tell me that's good news. I want to tell you a story and then I'm going to go shoot some pheasants or at least attempt to. And if you have really good farmland and you don't let me help you with that, you're a sinner. But here we go. Story, closer. I said each week that there would be somebody that we focus on. There's a guy that I'm friends with. The, the, the young man that brought me my water knew him as a, as a smaller child. His name is Anthony Waldner, and he goes downtown. And I met him. I couldn't remember how I first met him. We'll leave that picture up for a little while. I don't remember how I first met him. I don't know if he went here or if someone introduced me to him, but I have this thing about me where um, I can talk a lot but fix nothing and do nothing well with my hands. And Tony uh, is a man of few words in some ways, but he can fix absolutely anything. And so I tend to make friends with guys like that. And I had this floor. We were living in this house by Northern that we actually just sold. But I had this floor that desperately needed to be resurfaced. And somehow I met Tony about 10 years ago and probably for a week, he was in my house, and it smelled so amazing having that lacquer every day with small children just kind of killing their brain cells. And Tony and I got close. Tony uh, is an ex-Hooderite. He grew up on the colony. 
and he was a jack of all trades, really nice, really funny. You know, some people, there's just something about him. That's Tony. He goes downtown, and if you know him, you know that's true. There's kind of only one Tony, but Tony had something in his life that became very obvious even when he was putting that lacquer down on my floor. Tony didn't have like one addiction. I think he had a whole cluster. I don't even know all of his addictions. He would start, he would come over, he would smell like different things. And I'm not a drug dog, but it, you know, it doesn't take a genius. And I thought, oh gosh, like what's he, he, he going to do with the money I give him? And I thought, well, that's between him and Jesus. I mean, he's doing the work. And, and uh, we started, he's just really funny. He had this person that helped him that he was uh, dating at the time. And, and she had a drug problem. And she was actually an atheist. And uh, he, he had this reverence for being a pastor because he grew up in a colony. So he always referred to me as pastor. And, and as we got to know each other, he finished a job. And, you know, he, I paid him whatever the bill was. And, and then it, he started coming to church. And then it was like one of these deals with so many people at New Life where they're here. And then and you, and you go, well, whatever happened to that person? Or whatever happened to that person? That was Tony. And then he was here. And then whatever happened to him? And then he's here. I mean, this went on for years. And I can specifically remember with Tony that one time I was doing something in the kitchen. There was a meal. Uh, some, I don't know what it was. It was a potluck or something, and it was almost over. And I'm not exaggerating, and a few people have, uh, that are in the church were with me when this happened. This was a while ago now. He came in stoned out of his mind. And just so you know, he said I could share this. I don't even know what he was on, but he was gone. Like The lights were on, but no one was home, and he was emotional. And for sure, alcohol was in the cocktail, but it was one of those deals where it was more than that. And uh, we ended up taking care of him, getting him to a safe place. And, and I think at different points, he ended up in treatment. And then in the last few years, Tony has locked in and stayed sober by the glory of God that details matter. And his detail is he is a leader in the recovery ministry at New Life. I mean, he is a pillar in the recovery community. In fact, then a couple, I think last year it was, he came to me and he said, will you baptize me? And I said, well, for a small fee, maybe I can do that. But uh, no, I said, of course I will. And he said, I want Mark to baptize me too because he leads Celebrate Recovery. And I said, fine, that's awesome. And Mark's also usually known as Rhonda's husband that's on staff. And so we got in this water. It was so cold. It was at Wiley Park. And here's where the story is just amazing. We get in this water. I get out. I'm shivering. And then we go to this canopy or this you know, place where they have the food afterwards. And I start seeing people that I recognize. One of them is an attorney that's Tony's attorney. The other is Mark, who was a judge. And I see a probation officer that he used to work with. Tony does something that no one does. Tony starts inviting everyone from his past that used to bust him for all of his bad behavior because he wants people to see that his life has changed for Jesus. And he was emotional. He had his family from the colony, which is really hard sometimes to accomplish if you know how the inner workings of the colony works. He had people from his past that he had forgiven from things that had happened in his life. Tony had some hard things happen on the colony that really traumatized him. And now to this day, now Tony's getting married. He goes to New Life every Sunday. He goes to Celebrate Recovery every Friday night. His soon-to-be wife is in Celebrate Recovery. Uh, his soon-to-be wife owns a restaurant in town, and she makes food for different events that we have. And he's this guy who is just incredibly humble, who doesn't have all the answers, but he's this guy that loves Jesus with all of his heart. And he worships downtown with passion, and he's close with Pastor Micah. And he lives this life that is just absolutely intermingled with these details that are messy. 
but he's in recovery and he's sober today and he's gonna work to be sober tomorrow, one day at a time, because Christ died for his sins and rose from the dead and has given him new life in him. Praise God, right? Praise God. And that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to worship Christ, not as a perfect person, but as a person who knows that it's not about how you start, but how you finish. And then the obvious question then becomes, what about you? Is that your narrative, or are you playing games? Are you religious? Do you look good? Are you putting a persona of self on display for Aberdeen to see? Or have you been born again and purchased by the blood of Jesus, and do you walk in the humility of Tony? Because one day, Tony's going to go be with Jesus, and regardless of all the things he's done in his past that he's ashamed of, Jesus is going to look at him and see his own blood covering Tony's sins, and Tony's going to be in heaven with God the Father, Jesus the Son forever. But what about you? Do you know Christ crucified? Is he your savior? Have you picked up your cross and followed him like Matthew, or are you playing religious games? That's between you and Jesus. I'm going to close in prayer, but if you've never made a decision to follow Christ, I would challenge you right now, right here, to have a moment with Jesus. He knows your story. Repent of your sins and follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this narrative of redemption. That your entire lineage points to this idea that we're less than perfect, but that you save and that you redeem. And so for those of us that are here this morning, God, if anyone has not put their faith in you and, and picked up their cross and followed you, turned from their sins and said, Jesus, I believe that you are my Savior and I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And I'm going to look like Tony. Jesus, I pray right now that they would turn from their sins and follow you. Make us a person, a people of the fine print that love you and serve you. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.